Good morning, Park. How are you doing? Good. My name is Lee Grander. I serve as a pastoral resident here, and it's my joy to bring God's word this morning. This morning, we're going to close down the sermon series on Judges, which we've entitled, When God is Not King. And how we're going to close it down is we're going to look at chapters 17 and 18, observe Micah and what happens through the rest of uh, the book. But first, let's do a quick recap. Through the series, we've seen two different things going on. On one hand, we've seen the increased ruin of rebellion, uh, which has frankly made this book a little bit challenging to preach. We've seen stories of what not to do rather than what to do, whether it's been through the Israelites who are idolatrous and continue in sin, or through the judges who we've seen morally decline through the book. But one thing's for sure, we have seen the devastating effects of sin throughout this story. On the other hand, though, we've seen the astonishing character of our king, our one true living God. We've seen him raise up judges and empower men and women to accomplish his purposes on, beh- on his behalf. We've seen our astonishing king be true to his word, even during the midst of the destruction and sinfulness of his people. We've also been in this tension where we feel like something has got to give. Every week we are preaching that the Israelites need a better king, a perfect judge who will ultimately deliver the people once and for all from their enemies, from their own sin and destruction. Well, as we close this sermon series today, we'll realize that's just not going to happen in Judges. Rather, what's going to happen today is in the story of Micah and what continues through the end of the book is the bottom drops out. There are no more judges. There are no more deliverers. And there's a whole lot of sin. What will come next is fakeness and sin from a people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. So let's get started, shall we? For those of you who are able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll read chapter 17 together and explain 18 a little bit later. Chapter 17 reads this way. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ear, well, behold, the silver's with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son, the Lord. Uh, by the Lord, and he restores the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. His mother said, I dedicate the silver uh, to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And a man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said, well, stay with me, 
And be to me a father and priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in his house, and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning to seek your face. We trust that you are to be found in your word. And you say your word is profitable for teaching, uh, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. Father, that equips us for every good work and leads us unto salvation. So God, I pray today in a difficult passage, would you teach us? Would you correct us? Would you reprove us and would you train us for your sake? God, today would we have true faith? Would we worship you as our king? God, we want to see more of who you are and who you've called us to be. So we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I can say the phrase fake news, and it immediately makes us go, oh, right? Fake news. Does anyone like that? Okay. It's all around us. It's in presidential information and celebrity dating. And I'm not, going presid- or I'm not going into politics, so don't worry. And I don't even need to drag this point on. I can just say the phrase fake news and you understand what I'm saying. But there are even MIT researchers now for the last year who have devoted themselves to study this because of how devastating it is to a culture. I'm personally tired of it. See it everywhere. But the reality is we live with it, and it illuminates a point in Judges chapter 17 and 18. The question is, why do we dislike fake news? I think the simple answer that we would all agree to is because we want the truth. We want the truth. While we dislike fake news so much, how much more so do we think God dislikes fake faith? While we desire truth from our news sources, God infinitely wants the truth of who he is to be known and proclaimed through everyone made in his image by true faith. Today, in light of our passage, we need to examine our our hearts. Today, is God your king? Does he influence your speech, your actions, and your future Or do you say his name and act out a fake faith? It's my hope this morning that we would take the time to examine our hearts, to see if we're acting out in fake faith, but also to ask God to continue to be, or for the first time to be, the king of our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Amen? Today our big idea, which we'll see, is that when God is not king, we act out in fake faith. In Micah's story, there are three characteristics of this fake faith, and it's illustrated by three characters, Micah, the Levite, and the tribe of Dan, which we'll see later in chapter 18. I've said it once before, but I've got to reiterate this point for you guys and to prepare my heart. The bottom has literally dropped out in the cycle of the judges. We are in a free fall of sin, so prepare yourselves. And the reason I'm using fake faith is because these people are deeply religious. 
They're not just religious in a sense that they would worship balls or the foreign gods, but these are people who uh, literally, like Micah and his mom, are using the name of the Lord Yahweh, which is the covenant God of Israel. The Levite, as we will see later, definitely knows the one true God whom Moses worshipped. The Levite himself uses the name Yahweh. And finally, the people of Dan, who are literally ancestors of one of the original 12 tribe leaders of Israel, are also using the name Yahweh. Yet there is a big difference between talking about Yahweh as our God and knowing him in a way that radically changes who we are and how we live. The first characteristic of fake faith is found in Micah. And that characteristic is an elevation of self rather than the God we worship. From an outward appearance, Micah doesn't seem all that bad. He outwardly confesses to stealing his mom's silver. And he even has a statue between him and his mom made for Yahweh as a tribute. This doesn't look super bad at first glance, but this is what sin does. Outwardly, it doesn't always look that bad, but it leaves you hollow and self-centered. One of the age-old questions is, why is a statue that bad if it's dedicated to Yahweh? What would be so bad about the shrine, the ephod, the household gods, if Micah were to use them as a way to help him to worship Yahweh? Well, the easy answer is Exodus 20, verse 4. It's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is on uh, heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. The simple answer is God says so. But the more complex answer is beautiful because we see God's heart. The reason we are to keep the second commandment is because when we selfishly make for ourselves an image or idol, we shrink God into whatever idol we want him to represent. For instance, we could make a statue of God that represents his power. And we would be right in saying that God is powerful. Psalm 140, uh, 147, verse 5, God, uh, great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond all measure. We would be right, but we would emphasize his power and begin to neglect his humility. Philippians 2, 8, he humbled himself by, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The problem with creating an image or an idol, even if we try to worship Yahweh with it, is we immediately interpose our selfish desires for who we believe God should be worshipped as. But the reality is God is much, much bigger than that. The beauty of the, of the second commandment is that God doesn't ask us to try to wrap our arms around him he doesn't ask us to get all of ourselves around him and selfishly choose what parts of God we like and we want to be like. No, the beauty of the second commandment is that God only asks us to leave our arms open and behold the, ma the uh, majesty and the glory of how big God is. Simultaneously, God is powerful and humble, eternal and present, 
holy and friend of sinner, merciful and just. God is unsearchable in all of his ways. His thoughts are higher than ours and his ways are higher than ours. And yet, God gives us understanding to who he is and who we ought to be. Micah elevated himself by having the idols, allowing him to be the one who determines how God ought to be worshipped and remembered, rather than allowing God to be the one who determines how he ought to be worshipped and remembered. What's fascinating is that Micah continues to demonstrate this elevation of self. Micah doesn't only ordain his son to be a priest, but when he meets a Levite, He seeks to obtain him almost as a collectible for his house tabernacle. Micah knew the Levites were ordained by God to serve in the Lord's tabernacle. So he goes after him and says, I'd like one of those. Micah says in verse 10, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. This would be like to say, I will humble myself. I will obey and heed your commands. But in the very next verse, verse 11 The Levite is described as becoming one of Micah's sons, not a father. The reality is Micah didn't care much about worshiping the the Lord the way God determined he would like to be worshipped and remembered. No, Micah just cared about himself being prosperous. He literally says in verse 13, after getting the Levite as his priest, now I know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, will prosper me because I have a Levite as my priest. Church, I want to challenge us in two regards. First, maybe you don't have a statute of of Yahweh in your home. But do you selfishly emphasize one of the aspects of God at the neglect of another? Do you emphasize that God is holy or set apart so you focus on not getting tainted by the world But in doing so, you separate yourself from the world and neglect that God was called a friend of sinners. Do you emphasize that God is merciful, believing that everything you will do will never uh, be revealed or punished? It'll go unchecked because he's so merciful. But in doing so, you forget that God is just. He's also called you to develop self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. My second question is, are we using Yahweh's name? Are we using God's name or even Jesus' name so that we can selfishly get what we think would make us truly happy? Money for prosperity, a job for security, a spouse for love. Do we love God for who he is or what he can give us? As Judges continues in chapter 18, the tribe of Dan come into Micah's land and steal all of his gods. In chapter 18, verse 17, it says, five of the men of Dan uh, took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and in verse 19 and 20, they took the Levite as as their own priest as well. There's this climactic point in chapter 18 where Micah literally sees the people of Dan leaving with his stuff And he cries out to them. He says, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. What have I left? Micah then turns around, realizing they were too strong for him, and goes into his house. 
It's this sad, sad moment that I believe is the only blessing that Micah receives in this passage. It's a blessing because he realized during his life, before he died, in his life he realized that the gods and priests that he took and made for himself could be taken away from him. He realized that his fake faith left him hollow when comes a stronger man. Church, I just want to urge us, don't put your hope in the things that you can make with your own hands. Don't put your hope in the things that can be taken away from us. God doesn't want you and I don't want you to ever experience the loneliness and the helplessness and the disappointment that Micah felt while he watched all that he treasured be taken away from him. When we don't have God as our king, we may say that we worship Yahweh, but our faith will be fake. And we will treasure up things that don't last. I urge you, listen to the words of Jesus. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven when, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When God is the treasure of our heart, remember the words of Paul in, in Romans chapter 8, because we can. We can say with him, I believe nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. second characteristic of someone who has a fake faith is that they will sell out rather than being sold out for God. I know this is cheery, isn't it? When Micah meets the man journeying on the hill country of Ephraim in chapter 17, verse 8 and 9, Micah asks where he's from. And the man says, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And towards the end of chapter 18, literally at the very end of 18, it's revealed that the Levite's name is Jonathan. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses. Did you get that? The Levite is the grandson of Moses. This shows us how bad things have gotten in just three generations. Moses, the one who leads God's people out of the oppression of Egypt, his grandson, the one who compromises who God has called him to be takes 10 pieces of silver a year, suit of clothes, and a living to become Micah's personal priest in the household of idols, images, and carvings. What a sad story. Jonathan the Levite sells out and does it again when the people of Dan come by. The people of Dan say in chapter 18, verse 19, is it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be priest in the tribe and clan in Israel. Jonathan's heart got glad. He took the ephod with the people of Dan, the household gods and carved images, and he went along with the people. Wow, <laughs> that's a double sellout. First, Jonathan compromised and sold out his personal calling for money and a job. Second, as soon as the people of Dan come by, he sells out again for influence and security. I want to get straight to the point here. God has not called us to be sellouts when some money, a job, positions of status, or even influence come our way. 
God has called us to be sold out for him because Jesus has paid it all for our sins and adopted us as his children. We are tempted like Jonathan, so often to sell out and compromise our personal calling of being God's children and all who he says we are, like Charity read earlier in our service. We're tempted to compromise those things. For us, it could be the money, the job, influence that lures us away, but I want to argue this morning that more times than not, it's the comfort and security that gets us. God has called you and he has called me to be a sent people in John chapter 20, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. But how can we live sold out for God's purposes, used to see men and women's souls saved and crossed over the line of faith when comfort creeps in and tempts us to just spend the weekend watching Netflix or stare at our phones? It's easy to sell out for comfort, for security. I know it. You know it. But God has called us to be a people for his own possession who are sold out. I was looking at my neighbor through the window the other day and thought, God hasn't just given us windows so we can look at our neighbors and pray for them. He's also given us doors that we could walk through and knock on so that we might get to know them. So we might be salt and light to those living next door, above or below us, who have maybe never heard the name of Jesus or been invited to know the one true living God. God has called us to be a sold-out people. The third characteristic of fake faith is wanting what God has promised, but only if it's done our way. As Judges continues in chapter 18, the people of Dan are a perfect example of this. All the way back in the first chapter of Judges, we saw that God had given the promised land into the hands of his people. But because they didn't drive out all of the inhabitants of the land, people like Dan, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 34, find themselves backed into the hill country with the Amorites not allowing them to come down into the plain. So instead... The people, as we see in chapter 18, the people of Dan are now seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. And the second verse tells us that until then, until right now in chapter 18, there had been none of the inheritance given to, to the tribe of Dan from Israel. In chapter 18, we see that the people of Dan are seeking to get it themselves. They're spying out this land so that they can get some possession, some inheritance for themselves. They run into Jonathan, the sellout Levite, and the selfish Micah, as we saw earlier, and take everything. The people of Dan continue into a place called Laish. Seeing that the people were unsuspecting, these people were super vulnerable. They had a ton of stuff. It said they lacked nothing from the earth, possessing wealth. This was a rich folk. And last, they were far from the Sidonians, having no dealing with anyone. This was a very, very isolated folk making destruction pretty easy. So the tribe met together and went out and demolished the city. The last two verses of chapter 18 read like this. And the people of Dan set up the carved image 
for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danaanites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. I know, it's still getting worse. The people of Dan's fake faith, the people of Dan's fake faith wanted what God had promised, inheritance and land, but they sought to get it their own way. Rather than driving out and being a part of obedience and driving out all of the Canaanites, the people of Dan decided just to take advantage of a weak, rich, and isolated people. But this place, Laish, later called Dan, after you guessed it, the tribe of Dan, is outside God's promised land. So yeah, Dan, you got the land, but it was outside God's promise. The last sentence also reveals that the people of Dan had their own temple when there was in fact a true house of God at Shiloh, which was far from Laish. They said, we'll do it our own way and set up a mini temple and house it with our idols. Rather than meeting with the one true living God who had made themselves, who had made himself known to them. So I'll cut it to you straight. This is a terrible ending. And you guys, it just keeps getting worse. This is how the book of Judges literally ends, by the way. There is fake faith and sin everywhere. The people of Dan are living outside God's promise, outside God's blessing. If you read through chapter 19 and 21, if you've got kids under the age of 13, cover their ears, you'll literally find a concubine who is raped, killed, and cut up. You will see that war is everywhere. People are kidnapping women to have for their own wives. You'd think there's some sort of resolution, but the book just kind of ends. But those famous words, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we'll let that sink in. That was a good word. It's easy to read the story, specifically the end of Judges, and think there's no hope. It's easy to think that God will not do something in the midst of fake faith, sinfulness and disaster. But God, in the time of the judges, was raising up a people still for his own possession. The beginning of the book of Ruth, which is another one in the Old Testament, has this as its introduction. In the days when the judges ruled, dot, dot, dot. When there seems to be no hope in judges, God is at the same time preserving a woman named Ruth. God is preserving an unsuspecting woman because he has planned more for mankind than to be self-exalting sellouts who seek godly things in our own strength. God is preserving an unsuspecting woman to show that where the strength of Israel fails, God will bring deliverance through one considered weak like Ruth who would also be an outcast. God preserved Ruth because through the lineage of Ruth and Boaz would come a better judge and the ultimate king. There is hope amidst the story of the judges. This king, though, wouldn't, this king that they desperately needed would not come as a mighty warrior like Gideon or Jephthah. The king that Israel uh, needed wouldn't even come like a strong man such as Samson. But the king who would come would make himself nothing. 
taking the form of a servant, one who would humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. When we read through Judges, there are some dark and gruesome stories. I know that you remember some of them, but they're not the darkest in the Bible. Those darkest darkest passages in the Bible are those that recount the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. An innocent man who was flogged, struck, and crowned with thorns put on his head. These are the passages where we see the devastating effects of sin bore on his body. 1 Peter 2.24 puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus took on the devastating effects of sin, our sin, your sin, so that we wouldn't, you wouldn't have to deal with it if you would place your faith in Jesus. Jesus' death not only pays the price for our sins so that we can sing, praise the one who paid my debt and raise this life up from the dead. But Jesus' death also allows us to be transformed so that we wouldn't stay in the ruin of rebellion, so that we wouldn't look just like all of how Judges turns out to be. It allows us to be transformed from selfish sellouts who seek godly things in our own strength to selfless, sold-out followers of Christ who want God's promises in his way. The book of Judges reminds us that when God is not king, Mankind is destined for rebellion and chaos. We are reminded in Judges of of man's depravity apart from a heavenly king. The book of Judges serves as a reminder during the deepest, darkest place of human rebellion against God that our God's character is astonishing. That in this place, he would make a way even for the most wicked to enjoy him forever and live the life that he has created us for. This morning, we're going to continue singing worship to our Lord for his death on the cross and for all that he is and who he says we are. We worship him and we are reminded that in his death that he is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of all of our worship. And he is worthy to be the only king of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for not holding out the ugly bits of Scripture. God, for providing warning passages such as this one. God, for reproving us and allowing us to examine our hearts where we might line up in fakeness of faith like Micah, the Levite, and the tribe of Dan. But God, we bless you that in the midst of such devastating sin, that you still sent your son for us to die, that we might no longer be trapped, that we may no longer be slaves to sin, that we could experience freedom in Christ. God, that we could experience the joy of being called your children that we could experience the abundant life that you, that Jesus has come to give. So God, help us this morning to continue to put you 
as the king of our hearts. God, help us to worship you for all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray.